0: Welcome to the podcast of Calvary Baptist Church. We are delighted you have chosen to listen in today. It's our hope the message of Jesus will continue to spread and bear fruit, both in your life and the world around us. For more digital content, feel free to check us out on the web at calvarybcmoultrie.com. And now for today's message. Just a couple of things as we move into God's Word. You know, we are in the book of Galatians. Uh, we have walked now through verses chapter 1-1 to we will finish chapter 4 today. We're in this book, which is a letter written to the region of churches that Paul had spent some time with as a result of what we learned last week. Some kind of ailment that he had. And it just happened to be that this is where he was. And while he was there, he took his suffering. He actually and then used it as a means to proclaim Christ to these people. And many of them believed In Christ through faith and relied upon him alone. And many had heard the gospel and believed and as a result had been adopted into the family of God. As sons of God as we've been studying. But then we know Paul left. And then we we see in the scriptures that a group of other teachers came from Jerusalem into this region. And began to proclaim and began to teach something that sounded like the gospel. But they were adding some Jewish customs on top of the faith in Jesus And Paul is now writing this letter after hearing of some of them who have been turning from the gospel, turning from Christ and believing in this almost gospel. Not that there really is one, as Paul says. And we've been learning that almost gospels still abound today. They're rampant in our societies, they're rampant across the globe, and they are presentations of a truth about Jesus while adding things to it. While adding things to it. And almost Gospels, they sound like the Gospel. They maybe even use the same words, but they often mean something very different. Almost Gospels offer freedom, but what Galatians is teaching us is that they actually enslave you. There is no freedom in almost Gospels. And Paul has been, he's been pretty tough on these Galatians. He's called them fools. He's called them people who are bewitched. He said some pretty harsh language for these guys, and and he's beginning to kind of turn a corner here because really in this section we see he's just got done in verses 19 and 20. Look there with me real quick. I think we see the heart of Paul for God's people, especially these people here. David spoke of this passage last week as he preached it. He says, My little children... Which is interesting, right? Paul has an affinity for these people. He believes they're children of his faith, that, that he, through the proclamation of Christ, that they are for his watch care, they're for him to steward. And he says, Oh, I'm in the anguish of childbirth until what? Christ be formed in you. He says, I wish I would be present with you now, and I change my tone, for I was perplexed about you. So we see that he has been harsh. He has been very, 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 very strong language, especially at the beginning of Galatians. He says, oh, foolish Galatians, why are you so quickly abandoning the gospel for another gospel? What's interesting here is I really think we we begin to see with this language here, we see he's beginning to turn a corner. He's beginning to almost act like a counselor here. He's beginning to persuade them. And what he's going to do is he's going to use what the fancy word is a rhetorical device. So he's using what I believe to be some of the arguments of the Judaizers, and he's flipping it. He's taking the language of these false teachers and he's saying, here's what they're saying, but here's what it actually is. And so he's trying to persuade these people. You know, and that is the job of a Christian. Our job isn't just to browbeat. There's times we stand on truth and we stand no But there's also times where we as God's people, we are called to persuade. We're called to plead with people. We're called to listen to what they're saying and then bring truth to bear on that in a convincing way which is partnered with its truth. And we see here Paul doing this very work. And one of the things we need to understand is verse 21, right here at the beginning. So look at 421. Kind of sets the stage for his whole section here. He says, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? And so Paul uses this language of under the law. We need to understand that under the law does not mean obeying the law. We can't put those together. Under the law doesn't mean those who obey the law. He says, oh, I can't believe you're obeying the law. No, because we know throughout the scriptures, those who follow God, we love to follow his good commands. We think they're good for us. We think they're bringing flourishing in our life in accordance with God's design. So Paul, it appears here, is saying that if you understand the law correctly, you would understand that the law can't carry the weight of your salvation. It can't carry the weight of your satisfaction To bring hope and joy in this life. He's saying, come on guys, you're misreading the law if you think it can save you. What's interesting is it's not just Paul that says this. Jesus himself says it in John 5, does he not? The Pharisees are there and he's having this conversation with them. And he goes, you guys who read Moses, if you believed his words, you would believe in me. It's beautifully done here how Paul... Begins to take and help us to understand how to rightly read God's word. Which is so interesting. I think sometimes as Christians we think it's just a blanket reading. Like if I just read it, I'm good. But no, God says there's deep truths in God's word. Paul sometimes describes it as mysteries. that can only be brought about. But here he's bringing right to the forefront. Something really beautiful for us to see. And he moves right from that language of do you read the law into an Old Testament Story. Into an Old Testament story, let's look there at this story as we see him talk about two sons from two different confidences. Two sons from two different confidences. Look here in verse 22. For it is written that Abraham had two sons. And we see it, him describe these sons in a variety of ways. He says one by a slave woman, one by a free woman. So speaking of their mothers, one a slave woman, one a free woman. It says, but the son of the slave woman was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Some really interesting language that he does here. And He's talking about the, the sections of scripture in Genesis chapter 16, 17, and following in the chapters 21, where God had called Abraham out of the land of um, Chaldeans, out of Ur, and he says, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. And immediately he's like, awesome, this is great. And he follows the Lord, he goes to the, to the promised land, but yet there's this problem. He keeps, he has no sons. And he cries out to God, he says, God, man, the only, the heir of my, my home is a slave, Eleazar, five generations removed. And he goes, no, 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 no. I will provide for you. Look out at the stars and see them, their number. As vast as the stars are, so will be your children. And it took some time. Didn't it? I mean, we know that there's like we we read a chapter, but in the midst of that chapter is like decades, ten years have transpired, and he's still holding fast to God, and he's he's holding on, and he's having to be patient, and then finally Sarah looks at him and says, "Dude, I'm old, I'm dried up. Take my my maidservant Hagar, maybe she can bring us a child forth." And and Abraham says, "Okay," and he which is a normal thing in this custom, in this culture, and he marries Hagar, and and lo and behold, guess what? Out comes a child, Ishmael. Ishmael, the son of the slave woman, a seed of the flesh. And what he's doing here is Paul is fronting this idea of trying to manipulate works of the flesh to produce the promises of God. Putting forward my ability to bring about God's promises. He's, he's fronting this idea of, Abraham, I promised I would, I would bring a son to you, and now you're trying to make it happen on your own. Self-determination and self-reliance appear to show themselves in those moments when we wait on God. Have you been there before? I know none of you spouses do like this, like I've done in my, my, my relationship with my wife. There's something I see in my wife, and I'm like, man, she really needs to fix that. And I do the godly thing, I pray for her. I say, Lord, convince Shelly that I'm right. This needs to change in her life. And it might be a biblical concept that I'm bringing before her and I'm teaching her. And then what I could do is if I could get really frustrated, and then I could try to manipulate her into doing it. I could force her with either anger or withholding my affections until she changes. I could try to manipulate something with the work of my flesh that is still a good thing. But at the end of the day, she might change, but how is that relationship, how is that going to work out for us? Awful. It's going to destroy those situations. So one of the interesting things I think Paul is bringing forward, and we're going to see him tease it out in another way in just a moment, is this idea of works of our own abilities. Works of our own abilities. Can that bring about our own salvation or the promises of God? And this is one of the one ways almost Gospels can be identified. This is one very clear way. They say something that you're not doing is holding back the promises of God. I mean, if you think about it all the time, right? We talk about seeds of faith. Just place out that seed of faith and then God will bless it. As if you can manipulate God by anything that you can do. Any work of your own flesh. Something that you can create. Something that you can produce in order to seize more of God or say, God, I'm worth being on your team we know this to be true. And Paul offers, though, another son, does he not? The son of Isaac is the alternative. And we read that story just a moment ago. right? And, and intentionally, after 25 years of waiting for this promised seed, we see God come again and remind Abraham, I'm going to give you a son. And he goes, no, 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 take Isaac, or take Ishmael, use him. And God goes, no, I'm not using him. I will produce in your dried up wife and you old man a child. And lo and behold, exactly as he promised he would do, he did. We see the language given for Sarah here. She's described as the free woman. He, Isaac being the son of promise, born through a promise. And here we see Paul speaking about a total, complete reliance on God, not only to make a promise, but to bring about the promise's completion. See, only God can take a 100-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman and there be a child. I don't know about you, but there hasn't, to my knowledge, there hasn't been any of that since then. There's been other miraculous bursts throughout Scripture, right, that we see in beautiful ways. But but this is one, and this is God declaring, I will bring about what I promise. Not by any works of your flesh, not by anything that you can accomplish, but by myself. I declare, I make it happen. God looks down on Sarah. He opens her womb, and Isaac is conceived, just as God had said. And so Paul is using this story... To remind these people that only the supernatural can produce the promises of God. You cannot. You cannot manipulate God in any way by your works of the flesh. Which is so interesting because I think we do that all the time, don't we? Well, if I'm just, the, um, if I just do this, maybe God will bless me more. If I just do this, 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 and this. And what's interesting, and we'll see it as he talks about the two covenants in just a moment, it's actually a, it's a rearranging of obedience in the plan of God. It's a rearranging of the obedience in the plan of God. And one of the things we need to see here is that Paul is reminding the Galatians and us here today that all the benefits of the gospel are through Christ in our union with him and that alone. He is the true promised seed of Genesis 3, of Genesis 15, of Genesis 16, of 1 Samuel. He's the promised seed of life. So he moves from this language Of works of the flesh or trusting, relying, depending on God alone. And he moves into the next section here in verse 24. Look there with me as we see the two covenants of different foundations. Two covenants of different foundations. Verse 24, he says, Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She is corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren ones, who does not bear. Break forth. Cry aloud. For you who are not in labor... For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. A couple quick things as we move into this section, especially with this word allegory. All right, so this is, a, is, a, is a, a word that means exactly what it says. It's allegory. It's this idea of allegory. And some of the things that Paul is not saying here. He is not saying that all of scripture is an allegory. He's not saying that, that you can say that this means this, that there's an underlying meaning to every little thing. And that 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 is there's there's people who do that right they they try to manipulate the word to say what they want to say by saying well what God really meant here was this So what Paul's not doing here he's not condoning, condoning interpreting everything in the bible allegorically or as if there's a hidden meaning behind things The bible is to be taken literally within its literary context Let me give you an example of what I mean Suppose Shelley was writing to her mom you know, about a conversation that we had had. And she goes, Mom, man, Josh just beat me up. And Carol reads that, her mom, and she goes, well, dang, and she gets on the phone, she calls, you know, Moultrie Police Department, and she says, my daughter's being beat up, and the da- and the cops show up at her house, and, and they're like, what are you doing here? And Shelly's like, Mom, I meant he was he was beating me up because he's loving me, and he's walking beside me, and he's really showing me that I'm not who I need to be. But we think exactly how literally, then it's this idea of being like I physically abused her. It was a misunderstanding of that scene. And and so we gotta be careful that we do not do that, that we we take things literally as they're intended to, and that we also understand what Paul's saying here. He is not also saying that they were not real people, that this wasn't history, that Isaac or Ishmael were not real people. They are. They were. But he is reminding us that throughout the Bible, especially within the Old Testament, there are patterns, there are types, there are shadows that we see carried out throughout the Old Testament into the New Testament. Let me give you an example of one, right? Let me give you an example of one. One would be the dwelling place of God. The very beginning of the Bible, where is God's dwelling place? In the garden with Adam and Eve. But then because of sin, they're separated. But then God makes a promise through Abraham. And they, we see these generations come through and they go to Egypt, and then God rescues them out of Egypt, and He says, I want to be with my people, and He establishes a tabernacle. Right? And that tabernacle is the dwelling place of God with His people. Right? And then we see that transmoves into the temple. And then we see Jesus, his own language, I will tabernacle among you. He is the dwelling place of God with his people. And now, as the New Testament, we, God's people, actually have God dwelling where? Not just in the building, where? And his people, us. And then here's the greatest news of all. He promises that on the new heaven and the new earth, that once again God will be with who? Us. All of these things in the Old Testament were setting a pattern. They were setting a shadow. They They were reminding us of what was fulfilled and brought to its completion in Jesus. And so Paul is using this same understanding that these are actually an illustration and an analogy that can be used to understand this very thing they're struggling with. So let's look at those as we see them here. First covenant we see is in verse 24. One is from Mount Sinai. We know Mount Sinai is the understanding of the law of God. This is where God rescued the people of Egypt from of Israel from Egypt. He brought them through the Red Sea and then they stopped at Mount Sinai, Moses ascended and the law was given. And God made a covenant with them. So Mount Sinai is a representation of the law. And it says, bearing her children for slavery. She is Hagar. She is Hagar. So what do Ishmael and Mount Sinai have in common? He goes from the son of the works of the flesh to Mount Sinai, a location, a time period in the people of history. the history. Well, the same thing that we all struggle with. It's a works of the flesh. We think we can save ourselves by being good enough, following the law. And you know this to be true, right? We all do this. I remember as a young man, I used to do that. Here's the amazing thing. My mom and dad had expectations for my home. I know it's amazing the way I turned out now that you believe they did. But they did. They had expectations for our home. And I knew how to manipulate the expectations to get exactly what I wanted. I didn't love mom and dad. I mean, I did, but I didn't like their rules. I just wanted what they gave me, which is money to go do what I wanted to do. They were a The laws were a means to get what I wanted, which was whatever my flesh wanted. And sometimes we do the same thing with the law of God. We think, well, if I do this and I check this box and act this way, then I can put God in my debt. And you see here, it appears that, that he's using this idea of Mount Sinai and this woman and he's flipping it on its head because this is probably the exact line of logic that the false teachers were using. Abraham. Let's to Mount Sinai. And then guess what? From Mount Sinai let's to Jerusalem, the dwelling place of God, the temple. And if you want to really be a son of God, if you really want to be a people of God, you need to follow these same patterns. You need to walk in circumcision. You need to walk in these festivals. It was Jesus, obedience, then you're saved. And this is a crucial thing that we'll tease on in just a moment. It appears these false teachers were coming in and just adding to the work of Christ just ever so slightly. You see, Isaac was this true son. So you need to walk in there. Nobody would have attached Hagar to Mount Sinai. But Paul was doing this in a beautiful rhetorical way. He was saying, guess what, guys? You know who actually is the slaves? It's those who believe the law can save them. Enslavement. We see it listed four different times in this section. Look at verse 23. He says, but the son of the slave, according to the flesh... We see it again in verse 23, or 24, excuse me. It says, there will be the two of Mount Sinai, bearing children of slavery, verse 24, uh, 25, excuse me, for um, she is slavery with her children. This would be a total flip of the script. The false teachers are saying. They're like, no, just walk in the law and you'll find true freedom. And Paul's saying, no, if you try to add your works of the flesh, if there's anything of your own self-determination, if there's anything of your own ability to save you, you will only be enslaved by it. You see, salvation is found by depending on Christ and Him alone. Enslavement comes as we seek to find our value, our satisfaction, our identity, our favor with God, with anything that we do. And we know this to be true. Guys, you know this to be true. If you've, if you've ever been in a relationship with somebody, you're always trying to what? Measure up to them. Measure up to them. Try to Bringing something to the table. Bringing something to the table, right? Especially if you've got fathers. I always wanted to impress my dad so that he would love me. He would value me. And one of my dad's constant comments is, Josh, I'm going to love you no matter what. Because you're what? My son. This is the same thing God's declaring to us in these moments. That, that we have, through Christ, been brought into the relationship with God. It's nothing of the flesh. Jesus uses this language in John. He says, right, that, that which is sown according to the flesh will reap the flesh. But that which is sown according to the spirit will reap the spirit. It's the same idea here. And Paul is just reminding these guys that there is works of the flesh and there's a work of God by his spirit. So look at the other covenant. Verse 26. But the Jerusalem above. Is he talking about like Canada? Like above? No, he's talking about the eternal celestial abode, the dwelling place of God himself. Really quickly, I I think the best way to understand this is to look at a few of other Paul's epistles. Go to Ephesians chapter 1 with me. Ephesians chapter 1. If you're in Galatians, just flip to your right just a little bit. Ephesians chapter 1 says blessed in I'm ver- in mean, verse 3 he says blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us who's us believers children of God sons and daughters of God in Christ Jesus with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he has chose us in him before the foundations of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace And if you keep reading and you move down just a little bit further, he says, we are seated with him. And that's the, the beauty of it is that one of the things Paul is reminding the people here is that God's people are not those who labor in the flesh nor delight in only the things of this earth. Our greatest dwelling place, our home is where? We studied this in 1 Peter. Eternity. We are exiles in this land. We not only don't believe our works produce anything of our own salvation, but our greatest joy is storing up treasures where? In heaven, not on earth. And he's reminding them of this. this, this city, Zion, it was referenced to all over the place in the New Testament, or in the Old Testament. Or you can think of Colossians chapter 3, where it says, set your mind on things that are above, not on the things of this earth. See, here's the thing, Christians. Christians do not always dwell on, I wonder if I have enough. I wonder if I'm going to make it to the end. We are people that say, my mind is set on the things above, where my inheritance is secure. It's undefiled, unfading, and, and it's mine, and I'm secure. I'm always resting in the promises of God that are mine in eternity. I'm a future-minded person. Christians are future-minded people. Doesn't mean we don't labor here. Doesn't mean we don't steward things here. But my heart, my life, my identity is not based on anything of the this world now that's freedom right we've experienced tornadoes and if my whole hope is in something that can be destroyed by a 30 second windstorm that comes by that's not a very good hope he says but i've given you a hope and it's in eternity the jerusalem that is to come why is it going to come because christ is returning and this is the gospel of grace that he offers these people and he reminds them of and he's pleading them with he says jerusalem above where christ is seated And then he goes into this really interesting quotation from Isaiah 45. So look with me at verse 27, excuse me, 54. He says, For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, You who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Why does Paul use this quote from Isaiah 54, verse 1? As he's reminding them of the promise of a city to come. Why does he use this one? Well, one of them, you have to understand the context, right, of what's going on in this section of Isaiah. This was written 1,200 years after Abraham and 600 years before Paul is using it here. And the prophetic word was given to the people of Israel why they were where? Am I mean, know? They were in exile in Babylon. And they're probably beating themselves up. They're probably saying, well dang man, we're never gonna get to go home. We're barren. We just, I mean all of these just, man, we just, we're failures. We're utter, complete, total failures. We're barren. Isaiah was declaring to these exiles, do you feel weak? Do you feel shameful? Do you feel like failures? Then guess what? That's exactly where God wants you to be. Because God delights in bringing broken people to restoration. God delights in taking weak people to show his strength. God delights in someone who says, I don't have it all together. Instead, he delights in saying, I recognize I have nothing and I need Christ. The barren one. Unable to produce anything of their own self, and he says, "I will bring about many from these type of people." So how are you? Are you confident in your own abilities? Are you confident in your own works of the flesh, are you your ability to keep the law, your ability to be the perfect husband, the perfect father, the perfect mother, daughter, son? Are you Can you think you can do all these on your own? These will destroy you. These will enslave you because you will never measure up to your own standard. But God in this, in Paul, he's looking at him, he's saying, guys, but there's one who's declared, both in Genesis and now here in Isaiah, that I delight to bring weak people and make my strength known in them. This is the gospel. God delights and moves mightily, not in a person who can muster up on the strength on their own, but one who delights to say, I'm broken, I can't do anything, I need you. I need you. And the big question I really think that Paul is bringing to the forefront of these people's minds is do you think Jesus is enough? Is his work sufficient or is it something you've got to add to it? Is Jesus' work really enough to save, to change, and to secure you? Is Jesus enough? And the battle here in Galatians, I think, is a misordering of three things. I'm going to try to illustrate this for you as best that I can. So imagine the false teachers. They're they're walking into the regions of Galatia and they're speaking this truth after Paul's been there, and they're saying, Believe in Jesus, one, two, obey the law, three, then you're saved. Does anything sound a little off to that, to y'all? Hopefully, right? They'd be like, whoa! Believe in Jesus, obey the law, then you're saved. You're a child of God, you're a people of God. That is not the gospel. The gospel is this, believe in Christ, you're saved, and guess what happens? Then you delight to obey his word. The moment we reorder where obedience goes is almost gospels. If obedience ever comes before belief or before salvation in order to be saved, it's not the gospel of the scriptures. Does that make sense? I don't know about you, but I I was a rule follower most of the time. I went through like a stage of rule following, and then I was like, this is no fun, this doesn't accomplish anything. So I went the other extreme, complete other rebellion. And neither of them, they both crushed me under their weight until Christ shone in my heart in such a way that I'm like, oh, it's not about my obedience, it's about Christ. And I cling to him, and I trusted him, and I'm like, Jesus, you are my all, all of me, for all of you, for what? All of my days. And then guess what began to follow after that? I began to follow his good commands. Not to save myself, not to keep myself in his place, but because I've been so transformed, I was adopted as a child of God. So the question before all of us today is where do you put your obedience? Have you placed it before Christ? Have you added it to Christ? as like Jesus plus my obedience, then I'm saved. That it will destroy you. Because you will never be able to measure up to your own works. The gospel is Jesus Christ. God incarnate. Took on flesh. Living the life you could not. He died the death you and I deserve. For all who would believe. And it's merely by clinging to Christ. By trusting in Christ. By relying on him alone. Am I saved? The moment we reorder obedience. Is the moment we lose the truth of the gospel. Does God care about us obeying as his children? Yes. But that which he requires, he will produce in us. Jeremiah 36. Ezekiel 36. I mean, it's all over the new covenant. The language of his spirit will be within us. And I'm pleading with you in this moment, brothers and sisters, make sure, moms, dads, when you articulate the gospel, you don't put the obedience in the wrong spot. It will destroy your children. Do you call them to obedience? Do you call them to, de- to a delight in God? Yes, but you cannot place in more than Christ himself. Christ has to be seen as beautiful, as everything, as sufficient. His work, his life, his death, his resurrection. That's where your children's hope needs to be. Be careful we do not misplace where obedience is supposed to go. As people who love God's word, we have a tendency sometimes to lean that way. There's nothing I can do to produce that. I'm not like Hagar where my works will produce a promised seed. No, it's only by God and He alone by His supernatural work. He does the life-giving act. Not only is He enough, but as we sang, He becomes better. He gives me joy that's everlasting. I love this illustration that John Piper uses describing Freedom. If you've ever heard it before, I would encourage you to, to, to think about it often. He says, you know what true freedom is? It's having the opportunity, the ability, the knowledge to do something and being able to do it forever. All right? He, he gives four characteristics. Let me say that again. The opportunity, the desire, the ability, and doing it forever. So if I don't have the opportunity, like I would love to go jump out of a plane with a parachute on. Let me make sure I put that together. With a parachute on. All right? I have the desire, I got a little bit of knowledge, but I don't have the opportunity, so I'm stuck, right, I don't have those things, right, let's say I had the opportunity, and then I had the knowledge, I took the classes, I'm ready, and then we get, you know, however many thousand feet you have to be in the air, and then I look out that door, and I'm like, I don't have the desire anymore, it's not there, I'm no longer free, right, Imagine if I do the same thing, if I have all those things, if I have the opportunity, the plane's there, I get there on time, everything's there, I've got the knowledge, I've got the desire, I'm like, let's do that, and I jump out, and unbeknownst to me, the, the parachute's malfunctioned. Am I really free in that moment? I mean, I'm exhilarating, my my adrenaline's going, but then as soon as I hit that ground, what? Can I do it anymore? No. See, this is the difference in sin In the gospel, sin. we have the opportunity to sin. Many of us have the knowledge and the ability to sin. But guess what? There will come a day when you can no longer sin. And that tells you you are enslaved. But Christ, He so changes a people that now I want to serve Him. I know how to serve Him. I have a desire to serve Him. And guess what? I'm going to be able to do it forever. I'm the most free person on the planet And that's what Paul's reminding these people. Nothing of the works of your flesh will give you freedom. It will only enslave you. Lo Christ, make sure your obedience is in the right location of your understanding of the gospel. So what does he do here at the end? I think he gives us two kind of really exhortations right here at the end. Look there with me at verses 28 and following. He says, Now you, brothers... Again, he's pleading with these people at the end. He's saying, now you brothers, like Isaac, you are not children of the slave, but you are children of what? The promise. But just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. Understand, persecution will come For those who believe it's only by Christ. Because the human heart loves to say, well, I just have to add a little bit. I mean, God can have like 99.999% of salvation. I just want that little percentage. And that's not the gospel. It's all of Christ. And persecution will come as we lean back into self-determination. But he says here, cast them out. Speaking of how we, we see God speak to Abraham and he's like, well, let's just let them kind of hang out together. And God's no, cast them out for they have no part of the inheritance. Ishmael and your self-willed works of the flesh, cast them out. And that's something we as God's people have to constantly cast out. At the end of your day, if you go and you're like sitting at the table and you're having a conversation with your family and you're just like, I don't know, I just don't feel like, like I deserve God's love. You begin to self-loathe and just manipulate your heart and mind because you've not done enough. That you're, you're falling into self-determination, that it's works of your flesh, that you're in relationship with God. And He says, no, at that moment, cast it out, get it rid, and just say, Christ, you're enough. Or it might be the opposite, like me, I think I'm pretty dang I'm good at the end of some days. I'm like, God, you just need to give me a high five because you I'm, you know, I know you're glad I'm on your team. That too is works of the flesh and it needs to be put to death. That it's only by Christ. The two great spectrums of that are self-loathing and oppression because you'll never measure up. None of us will. Or the opposite is thinking you do measure up. They're the two extremes that we constantly have to put to death. Because they're both depending on works of the flesh. You know one of the greatest ways I think that the Bible describes that we can put these things to death how do you react in suffering? Suffering is God's great gift to his people. Because it lets you know, do you really believe you are deserving of something? Like, I'm a pretty daggum good husband, so that means I deserve a pretty daggum good wife. I'm not saying Shelly. Shelly's wonderful. If you know her, you know that to be true. We think we deserve this, or I deserve that, or moments of struggle and heartache. God shakes us and he says, Do you really, do you really believe? that Jesus is better, than he's enough. And another way is the manner we treat others. So imagine, let's just play a mental, mental game for a second. Let's imagine that someone went and did something just so awful. Went into a, a gas station and lit it on fire. And the clerk just happened to be in the back stalking and burned to death. We just, I mean, we look at that person and we're just like, how dare they? Huh. And that person were to walk in maybe after three years of serving prison time and we were to know it was them. We saw their pace all over the newspaper and they were to walk in that door. Is the gospel still able to save that person too? Or do you think you're better? That's a great indication of where you're, if you believe in the freeness of the gospel that Jesus Christ is enough. How do you treat the most wickedest of people? Are you better? You were deserving? Yet they aren't? I pray that's not our heart. But we go to all and share the good news of Jesus Christ, announcing what King Jesus has done and pleading for them to respond in faith and obedience. So how do we begin to cast self determination out? I believe prayer is crucial. Prayer is pivotal. Because this is our pleading, God, I can't do this. I want to, and I can't. So will you produce it in me? Genuine loving and a, accountability within a fellowship of believers is pivotal. We're not always the best at identifying our own sins and our own struggles. We need others to speak into our life. Reading Scripture and, listen, and seeing morality, not as the means of salvation, but as the response to faith in Christ. So this is Paul. He says, cast them out. But look at their last thing. One more exhortation in verse 5.1. It says, for freedom. Christ has set you free. And we're, and Paul's going to build this out over the next chapter. And he says, stand firm, therefore. Brothers and sisters, there will be false teachers to the last day. Trying to convince you, just add this or just do this or just move this way. And we are to say, no, I believe in the sufficiency of Christ and in him alone. And we stand firm in that truth because we believe what the Bible has declared and what Christ has accomplished is true freedom. True freedom. And do not submit again to this yoke of slavery. So, do you feel like a failure? Feel like you never measure up at the end of the day? Great. Stand firm in Jesus, for he is your salvation. Rejoice that you have been purchased. Now to walk in his good ways. This is the gospel Paul is presenting. Reminding the Galatians of reminding us that it is nothing of the works of the flesh. It is supernatural. It is God's glorious work. It is not by keeping the law. Don't misorder your obedience and your belief. And finally, stand firm that Jesus is sufficient. To the last day. Can't wait to get into chapter 5. Because it's the fruit, it's the, it's the outflow of these good doctrines and truths that we read in God's word. Let pray for us as we close. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Thanks for listening in to today's message. For more information about our church, feel free to visit us at calvarybcmoultry.com. We hope you will join us again next time. Until then, grace and peace.